Uh, let's get back to our study of 1 Peter. How about it? Um, why don't you open up to 1 Peter? Um, this is a, a great way to spend my birthday, is uh, getting into God's Word. One of my favorite things to do with some of my favorite people here. So uh, let's, let's do that. Let's dig into our passage in 1 Peter. So if you guys remember back to where we've been, Peter is uh, he's equipping us to live as elect exiles, we've said. Or he's said, elect exiles. 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter says, because God has chosen us as his people, because we are his elect... We are like exiles in the world that we live in. We were born here, yes. I am from North Carolina, that's what I say. But this world is ultimately not our home. Ever since we trusted in Christ, we don't belong to this old world anymore or its sinful ways. We belong to a coming kingdom. And when Christ returns, He will resurrect us, if we're dead, And we will reign with Him over this world. And then it will be our home. It will be our home as we rule and reign in that new world. But right now, we're in enemy territory. And so He calls us sojourners, exiles. Chapter 2, we're just passing through. We're like exiles, He says, awaiting our ingathering as His people, our restoration to the land when Christ returns. And what Peter's been doing in this second chapter in particular is he's been talking about our life here as exiles and what it should look like, right? Our life while we wait on the coming of the king and being restored to him, what should our life here as exiles look like? And if you remember back, it gives us kind of an overarching instruction in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and it's kind of the battle plan, if you will. We'll just do a kind of quick review there. These are high-level instructions that he's going to go on to apply to the various situations that his readers are facing. Various situations in in paragraphs that follow. So, overarching instructions. Do you remember what those were? All right, Jack can read. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, verse 11. And, can he keep reading? Doing good to our enemies, yeah. Exactly. You got it right. You nailed it. Doing good to our enemies or, or living honorable lives, right? So number one, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, Peter knows that we are tempted as exiles to think that our worst enemies are outside of us. You tracking? Our worst enemies are out there because we're in enemy territory, right? The government, our evil bosses, unbelieving family members, or just all the woke people in the culture that want to see us go down, right? Those are our enemies. Well, Peter says, actually, your worst enemy, the thing you need to be most concerned about is actually not outside of you, but inside of you. The passions of our flesh, the desires of the old man, which are waging war, he says, against your soul. This old man, this flesh, it's not who we are anymore. It's not our identity, because now we're in Christ. But these desires still seek to exert influence over us. Our anxieties, our depressive thoughts, our lusts, our outbursts of anger, fill in the blank. Those are the passions of the flesh, and those wage war against our souls. That's the most fundamental war, and it's against these desires. We've got to learn, Peter says, to abstain from these passions of the flesh, and especially when we're mistreated here. 
because that's when the passions are going to flame up. All right? We'll get back to that in a minute. It's not enough just to reorient our, you know, kind of abstain from the passions of the flesh, but there's also this positive element, which is living noble lives or doing good even to those who mistreat us, our enemies. We have to learn to live honorable lives, and that looks like continuing to submit to some of these institutions, like government. Institutions that may mistreat us at times. It's not enough, then, just to not retaliate. We have to learn to positively love our enemies, doing good to them, even when it costs us. And Peter knows that this brings God unique glory, and God will often use this kind of activity, behavior, to bring people to himself. And that's what Peter's after in this whole section, and that's what he wants to see developing in our lives, is abstaining from the passion of the flesh and doing good to our enemies. And we saw last time that he doesn't leave these instructions just kind of floating out there in the abstract, like, hmm, okay, sounds nice. But he applies them to concrete situations. And last time, we learned that this looks like submitting to an evil government. Submitting to the man, right? And tonight, Peter continues to flesh out what our life as exiles should look like, and he applies it to one of the most difficult situations his readers faced in the Roman Empire. Tonight, Peter's going to give some incredible instructions to the absolute lowest in society, the slaves, and how they should respond to their masters. If we thought last week was radical, intense, this week is a while. It is even more incredible. This is some of the things Paul says here, or Peter says here. Now, for starters, this instruction is incredible because in Peter's day, you didn't do this. You didn't address slaves directly. You didn't do that in like any formal ethical instruction in Peter's day. Because many in this time, philosophers, whatever, they taught ethics and they even applied it to the household. To fathers, to, to wives, to children, how they should act. But they almost never addressed slaves. Why is that? Because they didn't view slaves as, as persons. They were property. And so as property, they had very few legal rights. These slaves were often prisoners of war. And sometimes if somebody was in debt, he would sell himself voluntarily to slavery and offer his services in exchange for his debts. And so on occasion, a slave would save enough money to buy himself out of slavery, but even that was rare. And when it came to the conditions of, of the slaves in the Roman Empire, it was a mixed bag, okay? Some, some of the slaves had very kind masters, benevolent masters. They treated them with respect, dignity, especially if the slave was educated. Lots of times the slaves were more educated than the actual father and mother uh, in the household. And so they served as tutors and other things. Lots of times they'd have professional skills. They might be physicians or whatever, and they would offer those to the household. And so they would be treated well. But others weren't treated well at all. Some masters were crooked. They were cruel. And so slaves were known to be deceptive. Okay? They, would, they would often steal from their masters. They were notoriously lazy. They were often slack in their work. And many of them lived embittered lives, and we can understand why. Sometimes they would rebel or they would retaliate against their masters, but the response from the masters and the culture at large was very swift and severe. So very little rights, 
But here, in 1 Peter, the very fact that Peter addresses them is incredible. Peter knows that the gospel is for every man or woman, no matter how low. And that even a slave can be restored to God and become part of God's royal people. The fact that in the church, slaves and masters were reconciled, that they were equal in Christ, was itself revolutionary. That did not happen in the world. And when Christ returns, even these slaves will be exalted and glorified with Christ, and their freedom in Christ will be, they'll be made evident to everyone, and they will reign with the Son. But for now, Peter is very clear. As exiles here, he gives specific instructions to the slaves, and he says they still have an obligation to submit to their earthly masters and not to overthrow them. Not to rebel against them, not to retaliate, not to be deceptive. Now, I'm sure if Peter were here, he would be the first to express grief at this institution itself, right? God didn't create it. God created marriage. He didn't create slavery. Slavery came as a result of sin. But in Peter's day, it was a known institution and has been for most of history. It was a given in the culture, and it was a necessity for the economy. It was built around slavery. But for Peter, what's amazing is that slavery was not determinative. What I mean by that is for Peter, what's ultimate is not the institution of slavery, but the slave's status before God. The gospel transcends our social standings and transforms us within those standings. So in the church... A slave is just as important as a master and can bring Christ's glory just as much in his situation as the freed person, if not more. And that is what's ultimate for Peter. Peter's not a social revolutionary trying to overturn social conventions. His purposes are more glorious than that, higher than that. He's aiming at a new world, at a resurrection from the dead. And what's ultimate for Peter is that a slave submit to the earthly master and do good for the glory of Christ even endure harsh treatment for Christ and for his ultimate reward. That's what Peter said. Now, for us in Western culture, we really don't have any firsthand experience with this institution of slavery. And praise God for that, right? Often, what we do as we, as we work through these passages is we apply these passages to our employer and employee relationships. You've probably heard that before. And that's fine, but it, it's clearly not apples to apples. <laughs> Okay, uh, that situation in the first century is not what's happening when you go to work. All right, let's just, let's just say that. And yet, there are relevant principles that we can draw out from these passages, principles that, by way of application, they help us navigate difficult environments that we're in, particularly difficult work environments that we're in. So it's right to kind of make that connection. So as long as we recognize the differences okay, between what Peter's talking about and our situation, uh, we're on safe ground to try to make some application tonight in the area of submitting to our employer and doing good in the workplace. So, looking at life as exiles here, next iteration, next application is submitting and enduring in the workplace. It's what I'm calling this sermon. Peter's going to help us navigate these difficult work environments we often find ourselves in. Now, the way this text unfolds is kind of interesting because you would think you know, he's, he's unpacking all these ways for us to, all these commands maybe, you know, in this, in this 
this situation that we're in, but that's really not what's going on. Peter gives one simple command in verse 18. Kind of like gives the command, and then, you know, he says, essentially, slaves should submit to their masters, even to the bad ones. And then the rest of the passage, all the way down to verse 25, elaborates and fleshes out why they should submit, why they should keep on doing good, even if they're being mistreated by these crooked masters. And it's radical instruction, and it's an instruction that's desperately needed in a culture that's obsessed over its own rights. Okay? We need this instruction. Now let me say a quick word about this command, and then we'll get into the meat of the passage with all those reasons and, and motivations. All right? Verse 18. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. There's the command. For, here's some reasons, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So again, one command, verse 18, and the rest of it's working out some reasons. And when it comes to the command, he's clearly calling on the slaves here, verse 18, to submit to their masters. It's the same verb we saw last week when we were looking at government and our call to submit to the government. And it means the same thing here. It's essentially a call for slaves to obey their masters. And for us, we could apply it in the realm of our employers. It's a call to bring ourselves under their will to do what they want, what they've told us to do. And like last week, it's not just a kind of passive resignation, like, ah, submit, you know. There has an active element to it. There's a doing good element to it. Our submission to them also has with it a proactive sense of doing the most good we can while we're at work. Doing what's best for our boss what's in the boss's best interest, what's best for the overall success of the business that we work for. And that's what Peter has in mind when he says submit. It's like obedience and doing good, right, in the workplace. But notice that Peter gives a quick caveat in this, in this verse, verse 18. He says we should obey, the ESV reads, with all respect, and it sounds like he's saying that we should submit to them, we should submit with a respectful attitude. You're reading from ESV. And I think that's definitely true, but, but literally Peter says that we should submit in all fear. In all fear. And I think he's telling us that we should submit to the masters in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Why do I say that? Because in verse 17, verse right before, he just told us to fear God and honor the emperor. And every time the fear is used in 1 Peter, it's always directed toward God. So I think he's telling us that we should submit to God, or we should submit to our masters in the fear of God, not men. So he's saying essentially, yes, submit to your masters, but submit in the fear of God. 
In other words, you're to obey at work because you fear God. Because God is in control, and He wants you to do good in the workplace. But that also means that the master, or the employer in our case, is not ultimate. Right? God is ultimate. If we have to choose between obeying God, or our boss, or in their case, their master, we choose God. Because we fear God alone. But then Peter ups the ante, right? Peter tells them they should submit not just to those nice guys, you know, not just to those really sweet bosses who understand us, work with us, let's take days off, but also to literally the crooked. ESV has unjust, but the word is crooked, I mean morally bankrupt. Peter's saying we don't get a pass to obey when we respect our bosses or when we don't respect our bosses. Okay, I'm only going to obey when my boss is good to me. Even the ones that mistreat us, he says, we should still do good to them. Even those bosses who manipulate us or use us or have only their best interests in mind or who slander us to the other employees. We should still work to be as obedient as we can to them because of what Peter's saying here. Not only to the just, but also to the unjust. Now, that kind of command exposes every single fleshly impulse within us. <laughs> I know it does for me. But here is where one of those differences between Peter's situation and our situation comes out. Okay? If Peter were here, I'm sure he would rejoice in the fact that we have provision in the law for these kinds of things. Right? That's a nice, that's a nice perk. That we have legal recourse when we are mistreated in the workplace. And he would want us to report abuses to the proper authorities. Remember, because he told us to be a law-abiding citizen last week. And I'm sure that he would encourage us to look for another job if the workplace we were in was unethical, we'd have that freedom. Praise God for that. But for Peter's audience, they did not have those protections. Well, they didn't have a luxury of finding another master. They could actually make an appeal in the Roman court system. They could do that but they didn't have a guarantee that they would be sold to another master. And sometimes, even in our culture, we're not as free as we think. We need to work. And many times, jobs are not falling off trees. It takes time to apply. It takes time to get hired somewhere else. So oftentimes, we find ourselves stuck in a job or under a boss who does not like us very much and makes our lives much, much, much more difficult. And if the trends in our culture continue, that's only going to become more and more common. So we're going to need to get some truth in our minds. It's going to hold us up. It's going to equip us to stay the course, to protect us from being afraid or growing embittered. Truths that are going to keep us focused on doing good, like he says here, and living for Christ's glory right in the middle of these difficult work environments that we may find ourselves in. And that's exactly what Peter gives us in the rest of our text. And that's where we're going to head tonight. We're going to look at four motivations. Four motivations to endure mistreatment. To keep doing good in the workplace. Okay, four, we're looking at four motivations that will help us to endure the mistreatment that we, that we will inevitably face at one point or another. And to keep pressing the pedal down to do good in the workplace. So I've got a little phrase up here. We should submit and endure mistreatment in the workplace, colon, and then I'm going to give you why, the reason. What Peter does first is he puts wind in our sails by pulling back the curtains and helping us see 
mistreatment from God's perspective. Okay? God sees their suffering, and God is pleased by their endurance, and God will reward them lavishly for it. So we could say that our first motivation to endure mistreatment in the workplace is because God will reward us for it. God will reward us for it. So submit, verse 18, even to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing, he says, verse 19. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. All right, so Peter knows that sometimes when we pursue glorifying Christ at work, really in any situation uh, in our lives as exiles, but when we pursue glorifying Christ at work, we pursue living above reproach and working hard for our bosses, that sometimes we'll just have a really nasty boss. All right? And sometimes that boss will just try to make our lives difficult for no other reason than the fact that we are Christians. But Peter says here that if we're suffering for Christ at work, this is actually a really good thing. Because it will ultimately bring us reward. Hang on. Where are you getting that? Well, let's unpack it. I'm saying that we're going to be rewarded because Peter calls our mistreatment, he says, quote, a gracious thing, if you're reading from the ESV. Or it's something that finds favor with God. That's better. Nasby. It's something that finds favor with God. He says that twice in these verses. He says it once at the start of verse 19, and then again, he said it comes back to it at the end of verse 20. You see that? And it leads with it, and then he rounds it out at the end of verse 20 with that same phrase. This finds favor. This is something that pleases God. So what's he saying here? Well, the term is, is literally just grace or favor. So you could read it like this. For this is a grace when mindful of God. Or this is, a, this is something favorable. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows for suffering unjustly. And then later, in verse 20, you find that this is, this is favorable before God or in his sight. And anytime God's pleased, you can expect that a lavish reward is going to come. Okay? It helps to know here that Peter's probably drawn off something the Lord taught him. Back in Luke 6, Jesus says something very similar. I think I have it up here. Yep. He uses the same language Peter uses in this passage. But he brings in this idea of reward. Okay? So track with me here. Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit, what grace, literally, what grace is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, again, grace, is that to you? What favor is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that? That's grace again, same word every time. What grace is that to you? It's the same word in our passage. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your grace? What does he say? Reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So, in, the, in other words, reward, a different term, is synonymous in this context with benefit, credit, which is the grace term that we're using in our passage. 
So he switches from talking about the credit or the grace to the reward. And I think the same thing's going on in our, in our passage here. It will bring unspeakable reward when Christ comes if we submit to unkind masters, to bosses who mistreat us. And so the next time you're working hard, the next time you're busting tables or doing double the, you know, you're doing kind of double time, you're working twice as hard as your coworkers, the restaurant, you've been doing that for months and you get passed over for the promotion for the lazy person, you know, because they, I was going to say, well, brown nose, I don't know what the right terminology is for that, but they suck up to their boss, you know what I mean? And they get the, they get the promotion, even though you're the one that's working hard. And you know that really your boss doesn't like you because you're a Christian. They don't like your Christ. The next time that happens, you have to remember this truth that your reward is coming. Christ sees the work and He is going to lavishly reward your obedience as you stick with doing a good job for His sake in the restaurant, regardless of how your boss treats you. You're thinking... That's supposed to motivate me. <laughs> what kind of reward are we talking about here, Clay? You know, like what? It's hard to. We need to know what what he's talking about in terms of the reward. What kind of credits coming to us? We're going to be talking a lot more about this on Sunday nights. But for now, let me just say that in Jesus' teaching, he talks about rewarding us in his kingdom based on our faithfulness here. Now he doesn't teach that we're saved by our faithfulness. That's the furthest thing that we're talking about here. He's saying that he will reward his servants, those whom are saved by grace, he will reward his servants in his kingdom based on our faithfulness here. Luke 19, you can jot that down. He says that for his servants who are faithful while he's away, that when he returns, he's going to reward them with respect to how they served him and how they invested so in the, in, the, in the parable, he gave them each a sum of money. They worked to invest it. And to the one that made more, he gave greater authority in his kingdom. He gave them all the same amount in the parable. And the one who invested and, and got more of a return, he had authority over more cities. In the first half. The one that made more, he gave greater authority in his kingdom. So based on texts like these, the reward seems to be how we will reign with Christ and what kind of honor we will receive in the millennial kingdom. When God returns, Christ returns, raises us from the dead, and puts us in positions of authority over the nation. Pretty encouraging. <laughs> Pretty encouraging for a slave. And that's a game changer. And that means then that from God's perspective, the situation itself is the opportunity for more reward on the final day. Did you, does that make sense? Because that's pretty paradigm shifting. Okay? That terrible situation at your work, he's saying that that situation is the opportunity to earn more reward in Christ's kingdom, so to speak. Often we're tempted to think that our earthly situations are the worst thing for us. Like that boss who's manipulative. You go into work, you don't know like what's going to happen, if they've got your back, or what they've been saying. Stomachs in knots. You're kind of stuck. You can never get promoted. You've applied for other jobs. So far, you haven't heard back from anybody else. And you're tempted to think, this is terrible. I'm the victim. 
How am I supposed to get through this? Self-pity, fear, discouragement, bitterness, resentment all come flooding into your heart. And you're tempted to think that your job is ultimate. That nothing good is coming out of this terrible situation. But do you know what the reality is? The reality is that every day you stay there, that very situation is another opportunity for more reward on the final day. For greater exaltation in Christ's kingdom. It's a chance for more credit to your account to cash in then. More pain here? Yes. More gain there? Yes. It's like working overtime on a holiday when everybody else is celebrating. You know? It's like working? Man, terrible. You know, like, sad in the moment? But what about on payday? Not that sad, is it? When your holiday is over and you've earned three times the amount that you normally would earn? That's pretty nice. Well, the same thing is happening on an eternal scale when you are mistreated at work. It is an opportunity to accrue future reward. It is a gracious thing, Peter says, to endure these current sorrows when we, when we suffer unjustly. We've got to know this. We have to believe this in the moment. Choose to believe it in the moment. It's how we fight our victim mentality and self-pity and live the gloriously noble lives that Paul's called us to, or Peter's called us to. In this passage. And if this sinks in, it won't come all at once, but as this you're pounding it in through circumstance, as this perspective starts sinking, sinking in, this will revolutionize your life. Now, as good as that's been, Peter says more. He gives us yet another motive to endure mistreatment at work, to keep doing good. And we'll cover these more quickly. And that's because, he says, God has called us to this very thing. He's called us to it. Not only will he reward us for it, but this is what we're called to. Enduring mistreatment. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter wants us to remember that being mistreated is not something abnormal. It's hard, yes. It's wrong, yes. But it's not out of left field. He reminds us here that, while, that, that we're called to this while we're on earth. And that's because Christ suffered for us and he left us an example so that we would follow him in it. We would walk in the footsteps of the Messiah. And Peter's point is that this is part of our life as disciples of Jesus. It's what we signed up for and it's part of the mysterious plan for our lives. It's something he's called us to. Meaning it's that mistreatment, that, that mistreatment at work is not something that's outside of his control. It's not subverting his purposes for our lives. It's all part of his good, wise, and gracious plan, as hard as that is for us in the moment. We've been called to this, he says. And we've been called to it when we took the title Christian. Don't be surprised, Peter says. We'll say that later, actually, in this, in this very letter. <laughs> this wasn't theoretical for Peter. It was like, hmm, pontificate on God's calling us to suffer, right? He knew what it meant to follow Christ in suffering. He knew that being called to suffer was not just something he had to undergo, but that it was an immense privilege. 
In Acts 5, he and the other apostles were preaching and teaching in Jerusalem. The Jewish leadership did not like it, and they called them in, and they beat them, and they told them not to do any more preaching about Christ. Acts 5. And listen to how Luke describes their response in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they kept preaching. Peter knew that to follow Christ also meant following in his footsteps. The expectation of his life was that it would be hard, that dishonor would come. But that dishonor ended up being his joy because it reflected an immense privilege to be associated with Christ, to suffer like he did. And so the next time you're finding it hard to endure some kind of mistreatment from your boss or your manager, something at work, remember that it isn't something strange that's happened. Okay, It's not abnormal. Is it unpleasant? Yes. Painful? Yes. Sorrowful? Yes. Scary? Yes. But not strange. It's actually normal, and it's a good sign that you're on the right path. The path of discipleship. It's a confirmation that you really are following Christ because your life really is reflecting Him and it's drawing enemy fire. And so we've got to remember that Christ has called us to this path and that will motivate you to endure in doing good at work, staying at it. Something's not wrong, okay? How it's supposed to be. And not only has He called us to this, but He's also shown us the way, right? Christ has given us an example of what it looks like. And that is motivating too. He hasn't left us alone without an example of what this looks like in real time. So we could say that we should endure mistreatment and keep doing good. Third, because Christ modeled it for us. Christ modeled this for us. In verse 22, He modeled it for us. He committed no sin. Peter's going to now start describing Jesus and, and his, what this example entailed. Verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ is our model. and Because he is, that's a motivation to keep, keep going. He's our pioneer. He's done, it, he's done it in front of us. He's shown us what it, what it means. And in this verse, Peter starts talking all about what Jesus did and the example that he's left for us as our suffering Messiah. And if you know your Old Testament, you probably recognize the language here in verse 22, right? Where's it from? Isaiah 53, that's right. It's one of the greatest passages predicting the suffering of the Messiah, which is why Peter goes there. We looked at that passage a little bit this past Sunday, but here Peter is saying that Jesus came and suffered just as predicted. His suffering was according to God's will. It accomplished God's purpose. And now that pattern is ours to follow. We follow in the footsteps, in the footprints of the suffering servant, or we could say the suffering slave. That's a thought in this context. But how? How do we follow him specifically? Well, Peter details out precisely how Jesus suffered, and it's so that we can follow him in that. So let's look at, let's look at what he says here. Notice initially that he endured mistreatment without sinning. He did it without sinning. He committed no sin, he says, verse 22. And it's tempting when we're mistreated to respond in the flesh. We've said that. It's tempting to sin, in other words, 
But as we learn to follow Jesus' example, Jesus wants to help us learn to endure mistreatment without sinning, like he did. But what does that even look like, we might think? Well, he gets even more specific here. He uses Isaiah's language, and he says that there was no deceit in his mouth. So he endured mistreatment without deceiving. That means Christ never lied. He never backed off from the truth to get out of the pressure or to get out of being mistreated. He was always truthful, and he wants us to follow in his footsteps in that way too. But it's easy to compromise at work, isn't it? Start shading the truth, especially when things heat up over something controversial. When your boss rails against those narrow-minded neo-Nazis who oppress trans people, and then she looks at you, right? Like, right? What are you going to do? You going to agree? You going to go along? Now, I'm not saying you have to set the place on fire, you know, with a wildly provocative answer. Christ calls us to be gentle as doves and shrewd as serpents. As we live here, we navigate these kind of tense situations. But we cannot be afraid. Because when we are, we will lie. Jesus left us a different example. No deceit was in his mouth. And that means that he's going to empower us to tell the truth. Now, <laughs> we're thinking like fight or flight, you know, and that's maybe the flight side. Uh, maybe you're the fight side of that equation. Maybe you actually want to set things on fire and watch it burn. I can resonate, you know. Want to tell your friends about it later. Ah, what I said. <laughs> Maybe you feel the need to put every slander in its place. You feel the need to defend yourself at all costs. Even get evil, get even with people who mistreat you. Right? Well, as right as that feels, it's not the example Christ left for us. That's flesh too. It says he endured mistreatment without retaliating. He endured without retaliating. Verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we could summarize these things by saying that, pure and simple, Jesus didn't retaliate when he was mistreated. He received it. Now again, I don't think Peter's saying here that we can never use the justice system, we can never make appeals, we can never hold evil people accountable for their actions. We certainly should, and we certainly must. Remember last week, we should live as good citizens. We see even other examples of, of like, let's say Paul, people appeal to his citizenship to avoid a beating in Acts on occasion. But he didn't do that with vengeance in his heart. He didn't do it as, to get, as some form of retaliation against his oppressors. Kind of get even with them. His desire was that even his oppressors might repent and come to faith in Christ. And Peter here would heartily agree with Paul. But what he is saying is that Christ wasn't retaliatory. He wasn't sinfully angry in his heart when he was being oppressed. He wasn't even trying to get even or stewing over how he could make these, you know, terrible Romans who were crucifying him or Pharisees who were deceiving the people, how he could make him eat dirt, you know. He was humble and gentle, and even from the cross, he was praying that God would forgive those who crucified him. 
He didn't take delight in lighting things on fire. And that's our example. He's going to light it on fire one day when he comes back. But right now is the time for non-retaliation. So the next time you're slandered at work, think before you respond. Think, how would Christ respond here? What would be his motive? How could I nurse love for even the slanderer in my heart? Now, we're talking about these things at this point. You might be thinking, Clay, this is impossible. Like, just straight up. Like, there's, there's no way. Like, I'm in these situations. I'm either terrified or I'm biting somebody's head off. How do you endure mistreatment without resorting either to lying in fear or retaliating in anger? That's a great question. Peter gives us the answer in this last example of Christ. And the secret is we must learn to entrust ourselves to God like he did. He says he didn't do these things. He didn't threaten. He didn't retaliate. But he continued, listen to the language, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the secret. You've got to learn to entrust yourself to God in the moment. Entrusting yourself to his promises, his presence, that he is the judge. and He is going to bring ultimate justice. That's what Peter draws out in this verse. That he's the great judge and he judges righteously, says Peter. So what this means for Christ is that when all those religious leaders were accusing Jesus, when they were beating him, when they were nailing his hands and feet to the cross, he knew and believed that God was with him. And he was entrusting his life to his father's care. He knew that as brutal and as painful as it was in the moment, that this was not the last word. That his father would judge righteously. And so he handed himself over to his father's justice. And he did it for us that we would learn to do the same. In the very moments that we're mistreated, we have to know that the slander of our enemies is not the final word. God will vindicate in his time, might be here on this earth, but definitely when he comes. No sin against you will ever, ever go unpunished. No slander will win the day. God will deal with it all in perfect justice forever. Do you believe that? You've got to. You're going to endure in the moment. That's faith. That's entrustment. And that's the secret to enduring mistreatment. So let's take that slander example at work. Somebody slandered you, you want to retaliate, you want to bite back, whatever it is. What would entrusting yourself to God look like in that moment? You might pray something like this. Father, what just happened to me was not right. You know it wasn't right, Lord. Everything in me wants to fight back, wants to get even with her. But you promised that you are with me in this moment. And that what just happened to me is according to your will. I don't have to take justice into my own hands because you are the just judge. You will take care of this. You will exonerate me when you think it's best. Help me in this moment to stay silent. Help me to keep trying to bless her as we work together on the shift. Help me make her shift easier. Show me ways I can serve her and love her. That's entrustment. And it takes work. 
It's definitely not going to come naturally. <laughs> Tell you that right now. You're going to need somebody discipling you through this, encouraging you, helping you renew your mind. You're going to have to repent. It's going to be hard work. Have some scars on your hands as a result. But that's the path Christ has charted for us. He showed us how to do it right here. He's entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously and he's calling us to do it as well. Now, as we finish up tonight, Peter ends this paragraph with a final motivation. And it's really a massive encouragement. He's still talking about Jesus' suffering in these last verses, but he moves from it being our example to how it actually empowers us to endure. So why that's important is if, like, after all this, you're, you're looking at Christ's example, and you're thinking about maybe some scenario you're in, and you're thinking, I don't think I can endure mistreatment. I just don't think I'm able to do it. Well, Peter assures us here that we can because Christ has already empowered us for it. You're right on the one hand that you cannot do this, but you're wrong on the other hand because Christ has already done what you most need before you were looking for it. Christ has already empowered us to be able to do this. He says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now at first blush, it doesn't look like these have anything to do with us enduring, right? But they do. Because they're still in the context and they're dependent on everything he said before. And in these final verses, Peter's essentially saying that Jesus' suffering has accomplished for us what we desperately need if we're going to endure mistreatment. He says, number one, that his death has made us alive to righteousness. And number two, his death has healed us or has restored us to the shepherd. So let's finish up by just looking quickly at each of these massive encouragements. His death has made us alive to righteousness. Verse 24. The point Peter is making here is that Jesus' suffering has already changed you. You're not dead in your sins anymore. You used to be. And under that scenario, there is no hope for doing anything we've talked about tonight. If you're dead in your sins, you've never, you've never trusted Christ, this is new to you, or you played Christianity, there's no hope for you until you humble yourself and come to Christ. <laughs> when you do, everything changes. He says that when you believed, you died to your sins and were made alive from the heart. And that means you have a new capacity to live righteously, to actually endure mistreatment like Christ. You're spiritually alive now because of what He has done for you on the tree. And that means you have the capacity to not retaliate. You're able to learn to entrust yourself to Jesus in these moments. That old you is what's afraid. That old you is what's angry and wants to retaliate. The new you, the Christ you, the alive you, is able to grow, to become like Jesus. And that's already happened to you, says Peter. Because of Christ's death. And that is great. But he also says, not only do we have a new capacity, not only are we alive, but we have been healed. We've returned to the shepherd of our souls, and that shepherd oversees our development. He's brought us back. He's returned us to his flock. He's healed us from our waywardness by his wounds. 
right, by death. And this means then that in our mistreatments, in any and every situation, we belong to the shepherd, to the overseer. He came to get us. It's a fulfillment, you can jot down Ezekiel 34. He's alluding to Ezekiel 34 in this last verse. The shepherd came to get us, to restore us, like he promised. And this shepherd will see to it that we are cared for. Our earthly masters, bosses in our case, even the most harsh, the most crooked, they cannot remove us from his shepherding care, from his pastoral oversight. He will guard our faith. He will help us endure to the end. He'll help us stay after doing good in the long run, even in the situations as they become harder and harder over the months and years. We're in his hands. We're healed by his wounds. We belong to the shepherd. Now we've been restored to him. So he's going to see to it. And that's where he ends this passage. And that's where we're going to end tonight. We're looking for four motivations to submit and endure mistreatment in the workplace. It's a hard call. Um, but one that Christ is empowering us to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're just consistently humbled uh, by how you shepherd us. And I pray that you would encourage your saints tonight, and if there's particular situations that they're in, in work or just in life in general, where they're being mistreated, trying to think it through, they're trying to think through what it looks like, I pray that you would uh, just connect them with someone tonight that could help them think through that. And that as they do, as they learn, to humble themselves, to actually glorify you in that seemingly mundane situation. If you would just pour out your glory on their life, and that you would use that little mundane situation to bring many people to faith uh, in your Son, and that we would stand back and see um, your great work as the shepherd who seeks his sheep, and that we would rejoice. We pray it in Jesus' name.